time. I've talked about the title Son of Man in the last couple of months, and it just has popped up in so many of the, of the parables. And uh, so when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and the word for glory is doxa, we get the word doxology from that, uh, his splendor, his brightness, his magnificence, his excellence, his preeminence, his dignity, his grace at the second advent, uh, and all the holy angels with him, and he shall sit on the throne of his glory. And so the Son of Man was a messianic title used by Jesus to express of himself, to express his heavenly origin, his earthly mission, and his glorious future coming. And John says it this way in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. The word, logos, the living word, here is the written word, but Jesus is the living word. He is the personification of all that is good and all that is the gospel. And so uh, we beheld, the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Not simply a reflection of, but the exact identity exactly identical to the Father. The Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one, that great mystery called the Trinity. So this is the Son of Man, Messianic title. And he came and became a man, came to this earth to experience all of the trials we've experienced, all of the temptations we've ever experienced, with the big exception of he never one time sinned. Now, it's for some reason, as a, as a man, I can think, okay, he's the son of God and God the son, and I can understand that he never sinned. As a little boy, he never sinned. That's, I can't understand. <laughs> I can't grasp that because I was a little boy one time, and I just can't imagine that. But it was because he was uh, the son of man. He was this messianic uh, promised one that came. Uh, the, so we see the son of man. Then we see the separation in verses 32 and 33, and before him shall be gathered, as fish are gathered in a net, that same idea, all nations. Do you remember when uh, Chris uh, was here, Chris Probosco, and he's talking about um, the Basque people, and he talked about um, nations not, not like Yugoslavia and Romania and the USSR or Russia and the United Kingdom, but all peoples. All people groups. He talked about people groups. So this is the word ethnos here. All nations, all people groups. In other words, the whole of the human race, um, not nations as in countries, will come together before him. And he shall separate them. And the word there, separate, is to define, to cast out, to excommunicate. It's a word that the title Pharisee comes from. Uh, actually, uh, so it's it's one it's a divisive thing. It's a dividing thing. One from another, as a shepherd divides or severs or excludes his sheep, and and the sheep here is an interesting word. It's probatin, which is uh, means to walk before as a shepherd, to separate those uh, that have a shepherd leading them from the goats. And the the word here for goats is a, uh, a young kid is distinguished for the sheep. Sheep were kept. For their wool, as my uh, wife talked about, or offered as sacrifices. Sheep were acceptable for that. Goats were a staple food item and were of inferior value. So there's, he's making a differentiation here. He's dividing between the sheep and goats. And I promise not to divide and say these are all goats and these are all sheep. I, uh, you know, it's not, that's not the way it works. But he'll set the sheep on the right hand, dexia, a place of honor, a place of authority. When? A person put on a banquet, and when they invited, we talked about wedding guests uh, last week, I think it was, when, 
and they had the guests of honor come, they would always sit to their right hand, the guest of honor. If you had someone that was preeminent, someone that you thought was more important than all of the other guests, you would put them on your right hand, the, the dexia, the place of honor and, and authority. And it, it, it shows that, that uh, the, the person giving the, uh, the banquet thinks that you are a very special person. But the goats are on the left which was the idea of, of an omen or an unlucky thing in opposition to the right. So here's the place of honor. It's not so much. And again, don't take this personally. Y'all who are sitting here, this just happens to be the way it is. Okay, so there, what happens here is when the Lord comes back to the earth. And let's go ahead and see that map. I think that's the next. Uh, oh, back up. What was that? Oh, yeah, there's two categories of people at this point in time. Saved and lost. That's the only two categories. Nothing else. American, uh, French, uh, you know, Australian, none of that matters. It's either saved or lost. Okay, let's go to the, to the map here. And what we have here is uh, here was Christ, and here was Christ's death, and this ushered in the church age. And one of these days, this church age is going to be over, and that blue arrow going up to the rapture, that's when the Lord comes back into the air and calls out his believers, and that's a whole other sermon for another day. And that starts all kinds of judgments for uh, this seven-year period. There will be sealed judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, divided into two, three-and-a-half-year periods, and then Christ comes back to the earth. So you have two comings here. You have the coming in the air. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you have Christ returning to the earth. That's what's talked about in Matthew chapter 25. So when he comes back and when that arrow, the, the down part right up there, that's where the judgment of the nations or the ethos or the people, the judgment of all people is going to take place. And two classes of people will be there, the saved and the lost. And Christ is the one that makes the difference in all of that. Now, the second point here to make is the, the sharing in verse 34 uh, and following. First of all, there are the rewards. Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Jesus talking now, then shall the king say to them on his right hand, after he's divided them out and put the sheep on the right hand side, he says, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. You who are favored by God, come and inherit the kingdom, the royal power, the kingship, the dominion, the rule, the kingdom that God offered his, his nation Israel uh, 2,000 years at least prior, who, and they didn't respond to him. Uh, they rejected him and crucified him. <clears throat> so he said, we have prepared for you this from the foundation of the world, from the very founding of the world. Come and receive the kingdom. So that's the reward. The kingdom is heaven for the saved, uh, an eternal place of eternal bliss. You know, there's very little we know about heaven. We know a little bit about the New Jerusalem. We know they've got gates of pearl. We know it's a city built in a pyramid. We know it's walls uh, that are encrusted with jewels. We know the streets are paved with gold. It's no big, gold's no big deal. We know that the king is there. There's no need for the sun, moon, stars because it's light all the time. Kids will love that. They never have to take a nap, never have to go to bed at night until they get old and then yeah, they want to go to bed at night. You can't make it to bed. You fall asleep before you get to bed and you get to a certain age. Watching TV, and next thing you know, it's the lights out. Uh, but but we know a little bit about uh, uh, the New Jerusalem. We don't know so much about heaven, except it's going to be wonderful. I've had people. You've heard people say, "I don't, I don't want to go to heaven if all I'm going to do is sit around and play a harp on a cloud somewhere." Yeah, that's. I got to tell you, that sounds kind of boring. 
But if you sat around on a cloud and played a harp as opposed to the other place, I would rather sit on a cloud and play a harp for eternity than go to the place called the lake of fire. I mean, does that make sense? It makes sense to me. So, uh, but I believe God's got a plan. I believe God's got a whole life. I believe this life is, this life, this life we enjoy here, and we are blessed, and and. John, uh, Chuck, you were right. I mean, we, we're blessed in Coronado. What, a, what an incredible place to be able to live, to come to, to worship and all that. But, but this is like the anteroom. This is like the, the vestibule. This is like the, uh, you know, I, I mean, this is the entryway to a life that God has for us planned out forever. I mean, a God who's an infinite, <clears throat> infinite power, a God who's of infinite grace and mercy and love has some... You have a verse on your, on your board uh, that eye has not seen, ear has not heard. The thing, and minds can't even conceive of what God has prepared for them who love him. And we're talking sheep and goats. We're talking about following him. He's our shepherd or not following him and wandering out on our own and doing our own thing. The kingdom, heaven for the saved, everlasting fire for the rest. Hell will be emptied into the lake of fire. Those, that's the two rewards. There's no third place. There's no purgatory. There's no in-between place. <coughs> There's no temporary holding cell. Although, I got to tell you, I'm going to go to a meeting this week, and I've got a bunch of preacher friends I've known for almost 50 years. And a bunch of them, because I get to pastor in California, are hoping there is a purgatory, so I'll have to go there for a long time to, to make up for being able to live in such a beautiful place as we get to live because they are frozen in places where they live right now and have 10 feet of snow and all that kind of stuff. But there is no purgatory. Thank God for that. There's, there's either heaven or there is hell. Now, the, the reasons for the rewards might be confusing to you, so let's go over this in the beginning in verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. Jesus talking. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. And we see here what I call Christian care. And there are, there are other verses that support this idea of feeding those that are hungry and giving drink to those that are thirsty and giving clothing to those who are cold and, and, and giving the necessities of life and visiting them when they're sick and when they're in prison and so on. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? What kind of love is that? If we can help alleviate someone's suffering and someone's sorrow and someone's need, and we don't do it, what kind of love is that? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, and it means they're only, but indeed and in truth. James says in chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Christian care. How much do we really care about people? How much do we really care about what our neighbors are going through? How much do we even know about them? How, how do we try, how do we handle, uh, uh, okay, um, usually when we're at a food place and there's someone who needs food, either you can tell by looking or they ask you if they could 
if they could have a quarter or something. Uh, I don't give cash out usually. I don't do that. But what I do, what we do is we'll buy them a meal. We say, how'd you like a cheeseburger, fries, what? Usually. We had a guy the other night. That, uh, he, I, we've helped him so many times. He's got the same story every time. And it's like, I said, I know you. I've helped you. He said, yeah, I thought you looked familiar. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and people will take advantage of you, right? There are a lot of scam artists out there. We, we've got guys on, on the corners over where we live that, I mean, they must weigh 350 pounds, and they're talking about, please, you know, need money for food, please help. And it's like, are you kidding me? You, you know, you can live for like, oh, I don't know, three or four months without having anything to eat probably and be just fine. So, so Christian care, though, is when we see a genuine need and we meet that need. That's important. Then there's Christian concern, verses 37 and following. Then, then the righteous will answer him. These are the ones who are the sheep. These are the ones going into the kingdom of God. And they said, in all honesty, in all honesty rather, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When was that? I don't, I don't remember us. And when did we see you thirsty and you gave you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or when did we see you naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visited you? So it's like, I don't understand. I know we're supposed to care for people. And you say we did these things for you. I'm just trying to figure out when was it, Lord, we did these things for you. And we see the Christian compassion in verse 40. And the king will answer them, truly I say unto you. Listen to this. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. So, so that means genuinely, if we help someone who's in genuine need, we're doing that for, it's like we're doing it for God. In the, in the parable, it was the king. But the king, remember, stands for God in a lot of the parables, most of the parables. And so you did it for that widow lady. You did it for me. You did it for that orphan. You did it for me. You, you did it for that guy that was in prison, that gal that was in prison. You did it for me. You came, visited me. I was sick, and you helped me. I was needed clothing, warmer clothing, and you gave it to me. And I was hungry, you fed me. And I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. In other words, you did it for them. You did it for me. Now, here's where you might get tripped up. Is this teaching works salvation? If you do these things, then... You'll be part of the sheep and you'll go into heaven. Let me ask you this. Were people who hid the Jews in World War II saved by those works? Remember, we can't. We can't do enough good works to make up for one infraction of the law of God. So we could never undo our sinfulness by doing enough good works. Or were there works, and again, back to the Jews and world, people who were saving Jewish lives, were their works a result of their compassion and their hearts, and in some cases, their salvation? Corey Ten Boom was a believer. Her parents were believers, Christians, and they housed, I can't remember how many Jews, and got them out of safe, to safety until they were discovered and they were thrown into uh, concentration camps and into death camps eventually. And only Corey Tim Boom got out. She did it. They did it. Her father did it because he was a believer. I, I read a, a gripping story this last week or maybe the two weeks ago about a man who worked with orphans. And when the, when the Jews began to be persecuted, he was not a Jew. 
But when the Jews began to be persecuted, he would take, and, they, and kids were left without parents, he would take them in and take care of them until he had over 100 kids. This one man was feeding, clothing, housing, taking care of. None of them related to him. He was doing it. I don't know that he was a believer. It doesn't, didn't say anything in the article about that. He was doing that out of the goodness of his heart. And when they then decide to ship the kids off to, uh, to, the, to, to the ghetto in Poland, they told him, we're going to take the kids. You, you're, you're, of course, a free citizen. You can do whatever. You... He elected to go with them and lived in the ghetto with them and took care of them. I wish I remember his name. And when they were sent to the death camps, these children that he bonded with for three or four, four or five years, he elected to get on the boxcars with these kids, went to the death camps and died with them. Compassion, a heart, concern, care. These poor parents in Florida lost these kids. These kids that go to school who, whose friends now will never be there. One, a, a girl that used to be in my church who, who babysat our children taught a confirmation class. One of those girls was in that was shot and killed. Do we have genuine compassion when people are hurting? Or are we so cauterized? Are we so, are we so uh, uh, toughened up? Are we so calloused that nothing moves us anymore? For years, I carried a picture in one of my notebooks of a little, I, I estimated to be two or three-year-old Ethiopian boy. Back when, it was just in the 80s or so, I don't know, when Ethiopia was going through its huge famine. And I could hardly look at that picture without weeping because my son was that same age, approximately. And, and that's somebody's little boy. People are on the street out here. Not That's somebody's mom or dad. Somebody's son or daughter. Somebody's brother or sister. Somebody gave birth to them, had huge plans for them, had desires for them, had goals and dreams for them. And the dreams have since been shattered. Do we have compassion? Do we care? Do we seek ways to serve? Because in doing for them... God says we're really serving him. But we're not doing it to earn a ticket into heaven because we can't. We ought to do it because God had compassion upon us. And we need to have compassion. He loves everyone. He hates sin but loves the sinner. Whatever we do, we should do to the glory of God, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And contrast that with what the Pharisees did. And it's right here in your text. It, it, it actually, a chapter before or two, in Matthew 23, 5 through 7. But all their works they do to be seen of men. Here's where, as a Christian, if we do something to toot our own horn, to glorify ourselves, if, if, if we give in the no one stands alone offering so we can say, hey, uh, you know, we, we, I gave in that offering. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm a good Christian. We just lost rewards. Doing the right thing for the wrong reason. 
He says, they do it to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries. They take prayer boxes. They put scripture verses in them. They put them in, they'd wrap them on leather straps, wrap them around their forehead, put them on their arms and so on. They'd have the word of God right up next to them. They would enlarge the borders of their garments, and that had to do with putting beads on their garments to keep track of their prayers and, and to show how holy they were and how much they prayed. And they loved the uppermost rooms at feasts. I was just, I preached on the feast um, a week or so ago, and, and Last night in my customs uh, and manners of the Bible uh, passage I was talking about, I was reading about how that uh, sometimes they would have upper rooms for the choice guests and they would have lower rooms. And remember how I said, don't take the uppermost seat, but go to the lower and let the get, let the person who's giving the feast say, no, come up here. I want you up here rather than take a place of honor. And then the, the host say, um, sorry, but you know, that's not your seat. Yours are down here. So. They had upper rooms for the choice guests, some of them did. And, and that's where the Pharisees loved to be. And the chief seats, the honored seating, the reserved seating in the synagogues, and the greetings or the titles in the marketplaces and to be called to men, Rabbi, Rabbi. They loved all of that. And they did all of that for their own purposes. And so this ought to make us search our souls and say, why do we do what we do? Do we do it for glory of God or glory of self? I've got to hurry. Suffering in, in verses 41 and following, there's separation. Then he shall say unto them on the, on the left hand now, don't take it personally, depart from me. And, and the word depart there is continue on your journey. Because that's where people are going unless they receive Christ. Continue on. You're on your way to hell. If you're not a Christian, if you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've not been born again through the Holy Spirit of God, then you're on your way to hell. So depart. Continue on your journey from me. You cursed or you doomed into everlasting fire, fire without end, prepared for the devil, the accuser, the slander, and his angels. Do you know that hell originally was not going to be for people? Hell originally was for the, for the fallen angels, for those who rejected their first estate for Satan himself. But because of sin, people elect not to trust Christ. People elect not to accept the payment and the redemption. And so they're on their way to hell. So there's sorrow in verses 42 and 43. He said, I was hungry. You gave me no food. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. I was a stranger. You didn't welcome me. You, I was naked. You didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You didn't visit me. And then the sin is this. They say, when uh, they answered him and said, Lord, when did all this happen? When did we see that? So it's the very same thing that was asked by the sheep. And he says, if you did it not to the least of these, then you did it not to me. James also says, therefore, to him that knows to do good and does it not to him it's sin. When we know what's right and we refuse to do it, that just aggravates the situation. It inflames the situation. It makes it worse. And here's the sentence, verse 46. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. 